0: It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson.
1: Pressing play. It's how we relax. It's how we reset. It's how we tell our brain, okay, it's time to have some fun. There are all kinds of ways to do it, but it's pretty clear that around the world, the first choice these days is to press play on a screen. From Netflix to Disney Plus to HBO Max, people are pressing play and streaming some great new series and movies, and increasingly revisiting some award-winning shows. Here on Press Play from ABC News, we're going to take a trip to Jersey to look at The Sopranos' renaissance. I'll talk to one of the guys who decides what to put on Netflix, but first, it was just over a year and a half ago when Disney Plus premiered the first live-action Star Wars TV series, The Mandalorian, to rave reviews. Three series from Marvel have since followed on the streaming service, and fans, they're obsessed. ABC News Entertainment producer and superfan himself, Steve Ervelino takes a look at why people love to press play on these new shows.
2: One of my earliest memories is my dad taking my brother to see Star Wars, except my mom wouldn't let me go, because I was only three and the movie had wars in the title. Ah, oh, but don't feel bad for me. In the many, many years since then, I've more than made up for it. And Star Wars, to me, became something between a religion and a member of the family. I can't not think of a time I wasn't into it. Even now, as an adult, allegedly, I have my own Stormtrooper armor as a member of the 501st.
1: Look, sir, Troy!
2: Growing up, I wasn't as into comic books as Star Wars, but when the Marvel Cinematic Universe launched with Iron Man, I was hooked. In just the years since, I've re-watched certain movies in the MCU nearly as much as I've watched the original six films in George Lucas' saga. And that's saying something. For fans of Marvel and Star Wars, Disney Plus was not only an escape to ride out the worst days of the pandemic, but its shows, both seasons of The Mandalorian, as well as the small-screen Marvel Cinematic Universe spin-offs WandaVision, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and the brand-new Loki, let hardcore fans drill down on the details and celebrate both the Marvel Cinematic Universe and George Lucas' galaxy far, far away. John Favreau was credited with launching the MCU with Iron Man, but he created other blockbusters by reimagining live action versions of Disney classics like Jungle Book and The Lion King before turning his attention to his first love, Star Wars.
3: The kid's coming with me.
2: Along with Emmy winning Star Wars The Clone Wars animator and producer Dave Filoni, they managed to do the seemingly impossible, capturing George Lucas' vision in a live action TV show and uniting a fan base fractured by the divisive Star Wars The Last Jedi.
4: I know for me with Star Wars, I was not burnt out, but I was very upset with how everyone was reacting to the sequel trilogy. And so then when it got to The Mandalorian and it felt like old Star Wars and everyone was like on board, I was like, great. This is the Star Wars I know and love.
2: That's Rachel Leishman, lifelong fan and co-editor of the pop culture site The Mary Sue and also the creator of the Padro Pascal podcast.
4: It is a man in a tin suit and a puppet the entire time. And yet we've somehow been like, this relationship is the most important thing in the galaxy.
2: Actress and writer, Mindy Kaling.
4: Mando is awesome. You know, they're really good at doing this thing of like, a stoic character who should not have love, and then slowly he gets peeled back and he's a father figure. Like, I mean, I think that they're just, that was just so brilliant of the showrunner and John. Dave and John. They're so smart. Have you ever removed your helmet? No. You know and they're also Disney super inclusive right like they have a lot of cool directors, people of color. It's really hard to make really good shows but then to have all these other things that's going on in the world and being like feeling like you're making the world inclusive too and they're just kind of killing it.
5: This is the way. This is the way.
4: You know I was a Star Wars fan but it's been such an incredible addition and they just really nailed it. The
2: series dives deep into original fans' memories and even their toy boxes. Favreau gave an example.
6: Well,
7: here's a, a, a vehicle. Oh, we should make it the Kenner Troop Transport with a six stormtrooper stand on the side. That wasn't based on anything in the movies. Let's put it in.
2: Brian Volk Weiss, who directed Netflix's popular Movies That Made Us and Toys That Made Us series, had this to say.
8: That Troop Transport, holy, I mean, that was... Dude, honestly, man, this is insane, I'm aware of it. I I teared up when I saw that.
2: Favreau and Filoni also brought back props, droids, and even fan-favorite characters.
8: I teared up when I saw Ahsoka Tano's my second favorite character in all of Star Wars.
0: Care to tell me what this is all about? Or would you rather save it for the council? But
8: I knew she was coming, so that was great. But when they showed Bo-Katan, for the first time, which I did not know was coming, I like, very emotional.
9: I am Bo-Katan of Clan Yeah,
8: I literally, my first thought when I saw her was, and again, this is insane, but I was like, she's real. I'm like, wow, she's real. They did it.
2: Another fan turned creative got a chance to bring back another favorite. Here's Mandalorian episode director Robert Rodriguez.
3: I ended up turning a three-page battle scene into a nine-minute battle scene because I was just that excited to be bringing Boba back. You know, I've been waiting to see this version of Boba Fett since I was a kid.
10: You look like you've just seen a ghost. I want my armor back. The armor was given to my father, Django.
8: By the way, also when Boba, when he leans over to shoot the rocket from his backpack, I was like, what an Easter egg.
4: Like, oh my God.
8: Nice shot. I was aiming for the other one. We are living in the greatest time in history to be a geek.
4: One of my favorite things about The Mandalorian is like my brother is 10 years older than me and I grew up with him always telling me that like Boba Fett rules. And I had only ever seen him in the original trilogy and I was like how how are you telling me he rules? He sucks. He literally just got like defeated by a Sarlacc. But, like what do you t- how? And then he shows up in The Mandalorian and I was like this is badass. Like, I understand and I am so
2: sorry. As for Marvel's Disney Plus shows, President Kevin Feige, who has guided the studio into a blockbuster minting machine, shows the same care for their small screen spinoffs. And as was the case for The Mandalorian, the fans are in charge. Malcolm Spellman created the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and was also the show's head writer.
7: The most powerful moment was my first day at work. Uh, When you walk into the second floor of the Marvel building, there's a life-size mitt of Thanos' glove, there are three real suits of different uh, manifestations of Iron Man's armor. You walk down a hallway that has the real mask of Ant-Man and Thor's hammer and all this other stuff. You make a left now all the walls are painted with the marvel characters and there's shelves of comics you can take right before you get to your room there's captain America's shield and glass you open up the door to walk into your writer's room and they've adorned the walls with concept art if you are a fan of this space it's such a powerful feeling man it really is no words you can put into and that floor i talked about jack who did wandavision ryan kugler everybody who's working on these projects Shares that floor. So it's just, I mean, I really can't put into words, but man, I'll never feel that good again.
5: Well, the Marvel
7: Universe is a hell of a fun sandbox to play in.
2: That's longtime Marvel Comics writer Ben
5: Percy. To see these variant mythologies expanding, expanding in comics, expanding in the audio sphere, expanding in TV, expanding in film, it's such a golden age. What you're seeing on Disney Plus, we're no longer limited to a two and a half hour movie or a 20 page comic. I love the way that there are no fences, like it's just kind of a wide open frontier right now.
6: Film critic and filmmaker, Mike Sargent. It can do more of what the comic books do than ever before. If you see a Marvel team up and Spider-Man makes a reference to something, if you're reading Spider-Man's comic, an editor's note, you know, pick up Spidey, whatever, whatever, you know, Now we can all refer to the TV series.
2: Loki creator Michael Waldron agrees. That's part of why I I went
11: after the
12: job so hard and, and why I was so thrilled to get it because I just, I immediately realized that the ceiling on these shows to me is just like, oh, best show ever. Because we have blockbuster film characters that we're now watching in six six episode or more TV shows, which, which means we're getting to really dive into these characters in a way that you just never have before. I am Loki of Asgard. Now get out of my way.
4: I really love that WandaVision used the coping mechanism of television, which is technically what we're all doing while watching these shows. And so it was really unique and smart. And WandaVision kicked off all of these characters we've loved for so long finally getting their moments.
5: What do you want? I have what I want.
2: The shows also gave the creators the chance to delve more deeply into weightier issues, as Malcolm Spellman did in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier.
7: We knew after Black Panther that the Marvel fans would allow us to have certain conversations as long as we keep it fun. And thank God for that movie, and thank God for the Killmonger was right hashtag because it proved these stories can be of the moment. And we work really hard to do that in a way while being staying respectful to fans.
6: You have characters that you introduce, like Danny Ramirez probably becoming the new Falcon from, uh, you know, Falcon in the Winter Soldier. Once again, filmmaker and film critic Mike Sargent. And now uh, the Falcon becomes Captain America. That's the way the comics were. After a certain point, you got to have somebody new. Now, it's a person of color, yes. Black and Latino superheroes, yes, that's the way it should be. Geeks do not see color. But mostly at a time when we needed it the most, the shows
2: on Disney Plus gave fans something they haven't had since the pandemic began, a shared experience.
6: You know, we're in a pandemic, we're in the worst time in 100 years, and we turn to stories, we turn to like, you know, what what are you binging? What are you watching? You know, so these shows were like a lifeline
4: loki came out and everyone was staying up till 3 a.m because they're like oh my gosh i have to see what's going to happen with loki even though it's like you could have woken up and watched it in the morning like nothing's gonna happen but everyone waited up as if we were going to midnight premieres to see movies again and it was the same thing with the mandalorian everyone woke up to like luke skywalker trending because they're like oh my god he's back and it was just So exciting and it's very strange and a new experience like to watch it all on television but have that fan moment as if we were in movie theaters watching them all together. But I also think that's a testament to these franchises.
1: People are pressing play on streaming services like never before and Netflix still the biggest. They're putting out more than a movie a week this year, which is unheard of. And before you press play on one of them, Scott Stuber is giving the green light. I'm the head of film, global film at Netflix. What that means is he's the guy who oversees all the movies made or bought by Netflix. And I wanted to talk to him because he holds a lot of power over what you'll press play on this summer and years from now. But when he graduated from film school at the University of Arizona, he tells
13: me he couldn't get a job. My senior year in college, I wrote a letter to every uh, UPM production manager on every one of those, just a blind letter saying, I'll do anything on your show or film. And I never even got a rejection letter. They just obviously threw them in the trash.
1: But eventually he got a couple of low level jobs as a production assistant, the bottom wrong of the showbiz ladder.
13: A lot of small film, Commercials and, and, I, and I couldn't make a living of it for probably four or five months. And I was getting frustrated and nervous that I never would get a chance. And luckily I was at a barbecue and a friend of mine's sister said that they have human resources departments at the studios, which I had no idea. And I went to every one of them in my one suit and my car with no in- air conditioning. And I remember the day vividly. And I took typing tests and said, I'll take any job you'll give me in your feature film division. And I didn't have a lot of callbacks. And my dad said to me, you have to define yourself and show them how badly you want this. Like you're just a, right now, a resume. So follow up and do something. So I went to a specialty costume store, got a giant foot, literally a giant clown foot and dropped it off at the HR woman's office at universal pictures and said, I will do anything to get my foot in the door, please. <laughs> and then she called and said, that was really clever. And what do you, she goes, there might be something opening up. And, I then got a job as an assistant in the publicity and marketing department about eight weeks later for after about 10 interviews. And, and that was the, the first one. And, and it was great because I really, at that time, felt like maybe this place wasn't going to give me the opportunity I so wanted. And I was thinking about other job opportunities.
1: I just worry that people are going to hear the story now. You're going to be deluged with feet. I know, it's actually He's true. Showing up <laughs> at Netflix saying, hire me.
13: Worked for you, Scott, so
1: hire me. What is your philosophy or Netflix's philosophy, or both, when it comes to, okay, this movie is good for our service or we're not good for our service?
13: I think you're always looking for the commonality. I think in some ways in the film business, we got a little adrift. We thought that global meant big, giant spectacle and big visual effects, and it obviously sure. does. And, and, and I think... You know, Kevin Feige, who I worked with many years ago at Donner, is a, a terrific storyteller and has done an incredible job turning those Marvel films into great story plus spectacle. Right. And I think that's the key is story and character first, which Kevin did. Um, but you realize in all of us, I think why entertainment is so important in the world right now. It's a unifier. Right. It, it shows us that any man or woman from any nationality or religious background or diverse background, we all want the same things. We all want dignity. We all want love. We all want hope, right? And when you can find a movie that that central character is all of us, that is a global story.
1: How do you, or can you, do you develop taste or is taste something that you're born with?
13: You know, and it's funny, I, I, someone gave me a piece of advice when I started in the movie business, and it was, to, it was you define yourself through taste and hard work, right? You can you can outwork people and you can refine your taste if you do the work, meaning read every screenplay, watch every film, watch every, Understand the rhythms of them. What are you looking forward to coming up this summer?
1: As people are, you know, it used to be the summer we go to the movies, it's five billion dollars worth of box office. That's obviously changed. Uh, So people are going to be looking to their streaming services. So what are you excited for?
13: Coming up this summer, we have this film trilogy called Fear Street off these R.L. Stein novels. Um, And we're releasing, it's like kind of a reinvention of the teen horror film. Um, And they're all interwoven and we're releasing them once a week. So they'll come out in three subsequent weeks, which is a pretty exciting thing and hasn't been done in film where you have a trilogy that close together. You know, the culmination of Kissing Booth, you know, Kissing Booth 3, which has been something for a generation. And then with Joey King and that cast has been a terrific, you know, narrative for us to kind of help reinvent the, the YA romantic comedy. Um, and then we have a really strong action movie with Jason Momoa called Sweet Girl.
1: With all the streaming services, I mean, you guys were, were first and you created it and grew it into something big, but now there's so much competition. Uh, are you finding it hard to find the titles that you want to, to cultivate those? Because there are so many more options now for people who are creating content.
13: Yeah, I mean, listen, I it's interesting. When I came here four years ago, we as I we weren't even in the league, right? We weren't in last place. We just weren't even in the league. So that, the fact that we're in the league now and we're fighting with the Yankees um, and really going after it, none of this worries me. I like the competition, right? It, it's exciting to me. I think it's going to be fun. And like I said, I think some of the change in the models is going to open it up And you're gonna see a new revolution. You're gonna see the new Spike Lee and the new Jane Campion. And, you know, I really believe we're gonna have that reminiscence of the seventies that we still write books about, um, where this new distribution model is gonna bring a you know, a giant wave of great cinema and great new storytellers to the world. Which
1: in the end is great for audiences. Exactly. Sure, there's plenty of new stuff that has us pressing play, but it's never been easier to discover some of the great shows you may have missed or re-watch some of those series. ABC Entertainment contributor Matt Wolf takes a look at a renaissance for one show that many say is one of the greatest of all time. So here we
9: are, talking about what entertains us now. And in this case, it may be a good idea to roll back to what entertained us then. Back to a time where life seemed to stop on Sunday nights. It was billed as prestige television, and it lived up to it. Creator David Chase introduced The Sopranos on HBO in 1999. Little did he and the cast know that this show about the trials and tribulations of a New Jersey mob family and their boss Tony Soprano would blow up into a cultural phenomenon.
10: How
9: could you say that? Funny you should ask. There's a few things. In 2021, the show is more accessible than ever thanks to streaming. There's a wildly successful podcast, a big social media presence on multiple platforms, a behind-the-scenes book coming this fall, a Sopranos prequel film on the way. Yes, there's even a Sopranos cookbook. Which I do own. But why? Why the appetite? Why the Sopranos renaissance? Why are we hitting press play again on a show... That ended 14 years ago. It'd be kind of quiet.
10: Well, ask us uh, remember when it's the lowest form of conversation.
9: Uh, maybe not.
14: Whenever we're in a crisis, especially, we tend to look for things that are familiar so as to find our bearings.
9: That's entertainment journalist and head of G-Force marketing and publicity, Bernadette Giacomazzo. Now, not only is she a self-proclaimed Sopranos superfan, just before the pandemic hit, she handled PR for SopranosCon, a fan convention attended by close to 30,000 Sopranos enthusiasts. She thinks part of the show's resurgence is thanks to the current times we're in and our natural tendency to head back to turf we're close with.
14: They know what's going to happen, and they know the mythos, they know... The sequence of events and that sense of knowing that sense of familiarity that sense of bringing you back to a time that was uh, much more favorable in your life gives you that sense of comfort and it gives you that sense of familiarity and that gives you that sense of hope
9: all right i got you but what makes someone drop everything <laughs> responsibility work <laughs> family obligations all that to go to jersey for the weekend and Put on Tony's bathrobe or a Carmella wig, get autographs.
14: The same thing that makes these these men that are fans of like Star Wars or Trekkies. We need that time to just step away from our real lives for five minutes and say, hey, We need this escape. We need to plug into something that made us feel good when we were younger so that this way, when we do have to go back out into the real world and face all the problems and the BS that are waiting for us, we're better equipped and we're recharged.
9: Part of all this, too, is that people like me are watching it now with older eyes. It's almost a different experience.
14: And rediscovering The Sopranos through those older eyes is, I think, what makes it so popular to this day, because the people who watched it back in the 90s when they were in their 20s, maybe, looks at it differently, at least if they have a half a brain. So Chase did a great job with creating that complex, nuanced story that you can view through those different eyes through the years. What do you think the dream means?
6: Can not I just be sad? Or a horse without some touchy, feely,
5: Freudian component to it. This has the ring of truth throughout it.
9: Dr. Glenn Gabbard is a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and professor at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. Now, he wrote the best selling book, The Psychology of the Sopranos Love, Death, Desire, and Betrayal in America's Favorite Gangster Family. A lot to squeeze in for sure, but all part of the complex and sometimes relatable makeup for a character like Tony Soprano. It's also Shakespearean in that we have a tragic hero that the audience pulls for. Somehow we want Tony to succeed, and he never can. Everybody can relate to the idea of aspiring to something that doesn't turn out the way you want it to be.
6: How about the fact that I hate my son?
14: Anthony, I think your anger towards AJ has been building for some time.
9: I don't know if it's fair to say, but I'd imagine those back and forths that we saw with Dr. Melfi, Lorraine Bracco, had a real-life Sopranos effect where people said, if a tough guy like Tony can go into therapy, even though he's fictional, I can do that too. Yes. Actually, when this show came out, there were a number of psychiatrists who knew that I was interested in it. And they
5: would tell me about situations where a guy, you know, who is in some way connected to the mob would actually seek out therapy. You know, monkey see, monkey
15: do.
9: The Sopranos, a runaway hit which ushered in a new era of television paving the way for other fan-favorite TV shows like The Wire, Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, and more. And it's a show that I'm still drawn to 22 years after its premiere for plenty of reasons. I mean, come on, the acting, the music, the quotes... The characters, and of course, that hair on Bali Walnuts. I'm here to tell you one thing.
2: You ever go whining to the big man again, we'll have a problem, my friend.
9: And I'm not the only one. The show has found new life thanks to it being widely available on HBO Max and other streaming services and the success of a podcast, appropriately titled Talking Sopranos.
10: How are you? I'm very excited. That's good, because you're not usually very excited. It's no, an no, no,
9: award-winning deep dive know. into all things Sopranos, episode by episode, and it's hosted by fan favorites Steve Sharippa and Michael Imperioli, who won an Emmy for his role as Tony Soprano's nephew, Christopher Moltisanti. Next time you see my face,
16: show some respect. I will.
9: When did you notice uh, the show was gaining traction again?
16: There are a couple of things that happened. In 2019, shortly after, we had this 20th anniversary celebration in New York where we, a bunch of us were on stage with David Chase. And around that time, I became aware of a whole new generation of people who were watching the show. And on Instagram, I noticed all these fan sites and meme sites and fashion sites. And it was like, um, this is the young generation.
9: Why do you think that is?
16: The young people, I think, connected to it, and I don't mean to be sarcastic or flippant, because it's really, really good. (laughs) It's hard for a show to kind of, I think, reach a generation 20 years later. I think that's really hard. I don't know that many shows that do that. That's the guy, Adriana. My Uncle Tony the guy i'm going to hell for so
9: as much as the show is beloved it's not without its critics right many considered it to be a poor depiction of italian americans thanks to its stylized violence my own grandfather refused to watch a single episode um in hindsight michael does a show like this get made today should a show like this get made today
16: it depends on the courage of the network, really, because obviously it does work. And young people who are much more woke than we were get it, and do not say this should be canceled or this is wrong or this shouldn't be on TV or this is. You know, they understand that it's it's whatever is not PC on this show is true to that world and true to the characters, and they get that. You want to play Santa Claus at the party this year? Nah, I can't do that.
10: Why not? I'm shy. We made the announcement, you know, that we were doing a podcast, and then we're supposed to start it in the pandemic hits. Steve
9: Sharippa played Bobby Bacalieri, a.k.a. Bobby Bacala, for five seasons on The Sopranos, and when the world changed last year, it was hard to think about anything else.
10: I don't know about you, I don't know about people out there, but I was in a funk. I was as depressed as I've ever been. I mean, who really is going to care about us talking about this show?
9: But then the exact opposite happened.
10: Weeks went by, and because it had been announced, we were getting on social media, when's the podcast? When's the podcast?
9: You know, we really
10: could use it now. You know, it sounded like maybe we should do this.
9: Some 20 million downloads later, it's only added to the show's impact and popularity.
10: Sopranos represented a good time. The parties, the Sunday nights, the Monday morning, every radio station, every TV station did a recap.
9: Yeah, those were pretty fun. But why do the Sopranos still matter in 2021?
10: First of all, I think it's about a family. And I think it's very smart. Some of the quotes in the show You're only as good as your last envelope, which is a metaphor for life. It's what have you done for me lately, as we all know. So Tony Soprano is a mob boss that has problems just like all of us. I'll tell you this, Bobby. You're an okay guy, but each and every man is judged on his own merit.
9: What are some of your best memories on set with Jim? He struck me as always a guy that made things better.
10: You know, Matt, uh, you know, you know. Jim was kind of the boss on and off camera. So no one got out of line. He was generous to a fault, you know. I tell you, you know, we did these parties when you were getting whacked and we used to take you to Il Cortil down on Mulberry Street. If you were getting killed off, so the first guy, uh, it was John Fiore who played Gigi. I said, come on, I'll take you to dinner. The check comes, I pick it up. Jim was irate. Give me the check. You know, pa 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 He's kind of yelling, and I said, "I invited, I got the check." No more talking like that.
13: It's okay, Bob.
10: Stay okay. out of this, You're
13: Sopranos.
10: You go too far. He was our leader. He was our guy.
9: Looking ahead, our love for The Sopranos isn't going away anytime soon. This fall, we'll see The Sopranos' prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, starring Michael Gandolfini, the late James Gandolfini's son, as a young Tony Soprano. Stephen Michael will also be releasing their book, Woke Up This Morning, The Definitive Oral History of The Sopranos. So just sit back and relax on your ride home. Take whatever exit you do off the Jersey Turnpike, go past the Pine Barrens, settle in, get home and press play. Just remember to look over your shoulder once in a while.
8: What happens I decide, not you? Because you don't gotta love me, but you will respect me.
1: One way people have been pressing play for centuries is music. Specifically, going somewhere to watch your favorite musicians play. And that experience has changed over the last year because of the pandemic. Bands and fans have had to adapt. ABC's Dana Schaefer has more on how people have been getting creative.
17: Imagine for a second, instead of getting handed a wristband, your car is getting a numbered parking spot. A leaf blower fills into a plastic bubble where you will be spending the next 90 minutes listening to your favorite band.
5: It
12: was weird at first, and then it just became like a cool tailgate rather than a party. That's Adam. I'm Jack. You have
5: Ryan in the glasses over there. I get up, I get down and I'm jumping. The
17: AJR brothers have been touring for years now and with 2020 forcing bands to pivot the way they perform their music, AJR went a different route drive in concerts. It's about
12: like paving a new way for bigger bands to be doing these drive
17: in shows. Bands look to the crowd for feedback on their show.
12: The indication if they like it or not is how loud they are and how much we can see them. And none of those things could happen (laughs) at the drive in show. So there's 20 minutes of like us not knowing if anyone liked it or not, if anyone cared or was happy that they
17: were here. Musicians thrive from live performances. And we'll do anything to get back out there.
9: We just simply got to work thinking, well, let's see if we can make one concert like this
17: work. The Flaming Lips lead singer Wayne Coyne has been putting on space bubble concerts since 2004. When typical concerts weren't allowed, he took it a step further to expand these plastic bubbles into the audience. We
8: have about 120
17: Equipped with a personal fan, two signs that read it's too hot and I gotta pee, a towel to wipe down condensation, and a personal FM radio to hear the music, the personal space bubbles allowed concert goers a new, safe way to enjoy concerts.
9: I think we felt very, I don't know, relieved that we were doing something.
17: The way we listen to live music is changing. Maybe you're not waiting outside a packed arena to get in, but waiting in your PJs for the queue to refresh on your laptop in your living room.
18: Live streams started becoming such a big thing, and they started becoming, like, bigger and bigger productions.
17: Dana Lamarca is a touring musician in Los Angeles. He's noticed a shift in the type of gigs his colleagues take.
18: The live streams definitely helped as a promotional tool to, to, to get people to listen to music and keep some spirits alive.
17: The idea of hybrid performances, concerts you can stream or experience live, may be more common moving forward.
19: I've been to a couple of shows where it's been streamed at the same time.
17: Josh Johnson has been going to live concerts since he was 13 and says every concert is a unique experience.
19: It's there and you're witnessing it and it's only happening at that one time.
17: And while your wallet or purse may consist of your ID, ticket and now vaccination card, one thing is certain.
19: Musicians are having much more fun when there are people in front of them. So yeah, it's (laughs) nice to know that my presence mattered.
17: And no matter the way we see concerts, Dana LaMarca says it best.
18: People want to experience art and even more broadly, joy. I'm excited to sit behind a drum set, hit the kick drum, and just make a bunch of people move.
17: Wayne Coyne shares a piece of advice. You have to stay optimistic.
9: People make fun of it, but it's like, man, negative people who don't want to do anything is not going to work.
17: Dana Schaefer, ABC News.
0: We've got the exclusive view behind the table every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot. The ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view, the view, the views behind the table podcast. Listen, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author.
4: And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson.
1: Go outside and play. It's something you hear a lot as a kid, and for good reason. The fresh air, the friendships, playing outdoors, it's great for people of all ages. We're going to take you outdoors to the newest national park in the U.S. We're going to go for a bike ride, preview the Olympics. But first, we're going to play pickleball. Four months ago, I had no idea what pickleball was. Now, I'm playing in my first tournament.
11: So if I call your name, wave your freaking hand and say here. (laughs) Wave your (laughs) freaking hand. All right, Drew and Jason. Right here. You're at court eight.
1: I, like millions of people, got bitten by the pickleball bug, addicted after my first day by this mix of tennis and ping pong and badminton. (laughs) played on a court about a third of the size of a tennis court. I mean, this is the fastest-growing sport in America. Talk to anyone who's a fan, and that's one of the first things they'll tell you. Uh, Pickleball is the fastest-growing game in North America. And with pros now making serious money, TV networks getting involved, the push to get it into the Olympics, Pickleball is on the brink of blowing up. But why? And why is it so addictive? That's what I wanted to find out. But first, what is it? For the millions that play, there are probably hundreds of millions who, like me four months ago, have maybe heard of the sport with the silly name but have no idea how it's played.
15: You're playing
11: with a paddle and you're playing with a wiffle ball. It's plastic and it has holes in it. Anybody who's ever played handball, tennis... Ping pong, badminton, any of those kind of hand eye coordinations, just, it's your game. And even if it's not your game, you'll learn it really quick.
1: I met Carol Hart while playing at a public park in Los Angeles near my house. You're like the queen of the pickleball court. Yeah,
11: they, they go, oh, you're like an ambassador saying, well, no, no, I just uh, loud mouth. pardon the yeah, loudmouth. No,
1: pickleball, especially in public parks, is often played on converted tennis courts. Tennis courts that, for various reasons, increasingly have no one on them.
11: You'll see one side of the t- tennis courts, generally it's empty, but on pickleball, especially Saturday and Sunday, you'll have between 38 and 50 people playing there.
1: On this particular Saturday, someone brought donuts to share, someone else brought all the fixings for Bloody Marys. They were actually making them fresh for anyone who wanted one. It was 8.30 a.m. Mmm, love a Bloody Mary in the morning. And this is one of the main reasons why pickleball is so addictive. Not the booze, but the camaraderie.
0: Everybody is welcoming. Everybody wants to talk to you.
1: Erin Saddleoff has been playing for about a year. And she's also one of those that has become a pickleball addict.
0: Yeah, I have definitely a personal problem with this. Um, I play twice a day usually. I have like 200 balls in my car, about six paddles in my backpack.
1: Erin is a disabled Army veteran, and to her, pickleball is way more than just a game.
0: And to keep anxiety and depression and all those things at bay that comes along with um, certain types of disability, pickleball has been one way in which I've been able to stay social, which is really good for my mental health, but then also to maintain like a high level of physicality, um, which especially during COVID was important because all indoor activity was shut down.
1: That shutdown over the last year drove pickleball numbers even higher, especially from one group, racquetball players suddenly stranded and looking for an outlet. Racquetball players like Omar Bader. Started playing it, first moment that I picked up the racket, haven't haven't stopped. Were you addicted from the beginning? Absolutely. He was thrilled to find an outdoor sport that could fill that racquetball-sized hole in his life. But Omar says he found much more than that. I think it's the friendships that you form in here. We're just
5: a family. Even if you lose, it's just this sense of warmth that everybody gives you. How often do you play? (laughs) Uh, Every day. (laughs) Try at least. Every day. Actually, I, I have one day set off for... My girlfriend, that's it. But once in a while I cheat and I I overindulge.
1: (laughs) You cheat on your girlfriend with pickleball. I I do, I do, I do. I was talking to Omar at the tournament I was playing in with my partner, Drew Sherman. All right, our first game, our first tournament, you ready? I'm ready, man. Definitely ready. Let's do this. We look good. That's that's all that counts. I've known Drew since I was six years old, and he's to blame for my pickleball obsession. He started playing last year, got hooked, and I went to check it out. Now, at the age of 43, I just paid 65 bucks to play with him in a tournament at the Paseo Club in Santa Clarita, California. Nice, Jake. Yeah! We won that first game, my ABC colleague Alex Stone coming to check out the action with his kids Jackson and Aubrey in tow.
20: What the heck did I just see?
1: That was pickleball.
20: That's the way to go, baby!
1: And you guys won, right? And we won. Okay, good. They lived down the street from where the tournament was being played and apparently had nothing better to do that Sunday. And Jackson had questions.
4: Why do they call it pickleball?
21: A lot of people don't believe this, but it's uh, the gentleman that created the game. His dog was Pickle, uh, and he used to throw a wiffle ball with him.
1: And rumor is the dog Pickle used to keep stealing the ball during games, says Greg DeMoustis, the head of tennis and pickleball at the Paseo Club, where the tournament was being held. He goes by Moose. The game was created in in Washington State by a gentleman who was a very good badminton player, and he decided to take three sports and create pickleball. And those three sports um, are tennis, uh, ping pong, and badminton. Pickleball may seem new to many, but it was invented in 1965, though it's really taken off like crazy in the past few years. The Paseo Club has been a private tennis club for years. Moose says a year and a half ago they said, hey, let's try out this pickleball thing and started a league. 20 people signed up. And now we're at 350 playing the game. The club started with just four pickleball courts, and at that time they had 14 tennis courts. 18 months later, it's even. 11 tennis courts and 11 pickleball courts. And Moose, a tennis player for 40 years, is himself a convert. Is it more fun than tennis? Yes. (laughs) At the moment, yeah. Uh, I've never left the pickleball court,
3: whether I've won or I've lost, without smiling.
1: There were about 300 players in the tournament that day, a tournament where you could win gold medals and bragging rights. It was just for fun. But not everyone plays just for fun.
18: Ben Johns, uh, pro football player.
1: Where are you currently ranked in the pros? I am number one. Ben Johns is 22 years old, and he's been the top player in the game in singles and doubles for two years now. Not bad for a sport he didn't start playing until about five years ago.
18: I was a tennis player and there were pickleball courts nearby the tennis courts so I practiced at. Looked like fun, just gave it a try. First US Open was two months later after I first started playing. So I played that and uh, kind of went from there.
1: He placed fifth in that first US Open and now travels the country playing in tournaments. He says he'll play in about 20 this year. It's still a select few that make decent money, though. He thinks maybe the top five players, the rest have day jobs. But at the top tournaments, the top prize could be up to six grand per event. How much money can you make in a year just off of, say, tournament winnings?
18: Like 70K or so. Okay. Yeah. The tournament winnings themselves are, you know, they're, they're something, but they're not incredible or anything. It's
1: not. He thinks the money will increase significantly in the next few years. Plus, add into that sponsorships, Ben is sponsored by Franklin, where he has his own signature paddle. There's clothing and sports drinks, and he estimates he'll make a couple hundred grand this year. Not bad for a side gig.
18: I am studying material science and engineering at the University of Maryland.
1: Oh, yeah. He's still in college. You should graduate next year. But don't expect him to put that degree to use anytime soon. Pickleball, it's still exploding in popularity. Prize money is getting bigger. Advertisers are investing. And you can now see matches on various ESPN and CBS broadcasts. And that's slowly starting to change things.
18: Pickleball, people mostly are still having fun with it, even at the pro level. Uh, And that's why I feel like they're definitely more nice to each other and cooperative.
1: You say mostly, though. Yeah.
18: I mean, you can definitely see in the last couple of years, it's gotten much more competitive to where you can notice a difference, and it's trending towards something more like tennis. Uh, but it, the, the original feeling is still there. If if you're playing a tournament and you're like, hey, I need some, some housing for this tournament, you'll have 10 pickleball players immediately. You're like, hey, I live here. Absolutely. Come stay at my house. Good coach.
1: Back at the Paseo Club at my first tournament. We're 2-0 now. We yep. won our first two games. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Yeah, very good. I think that uh, right here, we're up. We're up. Okay, game three. Here we go, game three. And while Drew and I are playing, Christopher Cooper is selling.
7: Well, generally I'll play um, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday.
1: That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot, and sometimes I play on Sunday, too. He's a rep for Head, the brand probably most famous for their tennis rackets. Novak Djokovic just won the French Open playing with a Head racket. But they also make racquetball gear and have also pivoted to pickleball as its popularity grows. That's just another example of how popular pickleball is. At a tournament that means nothing, that'll let a newbie like me play, there's a sponsored booth selling stuff.
7: Something like four and a half million people are playing pickleball
1: right now. So is it, I think some people might have a... Misconception that pickleball is all, like, older people in Florida playing outside. Is that the case? You know,
7: that's the stereotype, but um, pickleball's growing at the uh, younger age. Many school districts are picking up pickleball as their activity of choice.
1: Yes, pickleball isn't just for seniors and aging tennis players, as Drew and I found out in our third tournament match. First team that we lost to, a couple of young little punks, man. Look, we're in our 40s, Right. We're experienced men. Right. We should have had them. That's another thing about pickleball that has fueled its growth. You can be almost any age, like Carol.
11: I'm 63. <laughs> I'll be 64 in, in September.
1: You had to think about that for a second. And people of all physical levels can get in on the action, says Ayumi Azuka.
4: Uh, yeah, I was recovering after two car accidents, and uh, I wanted to get back to tennis. And uh, my tennis coach said, hey, you should try pickleball. I'm like, I don't know, it sounds kind of stupid. <laughs> and uh, so then eventually he wore me down and I haven't played tennis since.
1: Ayumi is an actress, but also a pickleball instructor. She teaches with Alexander Juarez. And they cautioned that even though pickleball can be less stressful than some sports like tennis.
4: Oh, uh, when I first started, yeah, I, I felt something pop in my elbow and then it turned purple from my shoulder down to halfway to my wrist. Um, so that took me out for six weeks. And, and, but I played for seven more hours that day. And then I was out for six weeks. <laughs> I heard the pop and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to put a little bit of medicated rub. I'm fine.
22: I've been hit in the in the face. I've been hit in the throat. I've been hit in the in the nose zone, as I like to call it sometimes. Because it hurt though. It's a wiffle ball, so it can't hurt that so bad, right? It, it hurts a little. Yeah, it's it's not as bad as like getting hit with a tennis ball. Um,
1: but you know what hurts the most? Losing. Back at the tournament, Drew and I played our fourth match against Omar, the guy whose girlfriend is jealous over how much pickleball he plays, and his partner Marco. It was a tough battle. The score going back and forth. The crowd going crazy with every point. But. Ultimately, we just played four games in our first tournament or my first tournament, your first tournament, not, not your first tournament, played amazing for your first tournament. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. We won two. We lost two and we are out of it now. I'll admit it was a disappointing outcome, but Drew's son, Max, was there to make it all better.
3: Snow cone! That's right.
1: That's what you do when you lose. You get a snow cone. As for the addictive nature of pickleball and its explosion in popularity, especially in the last year, over and over again, I was told by people that, yeah, the game is fun, but it's also about the community, the camaraderie, the instant feeling of belonging everyone felt when they first started playing.
0: Is everybody okay here?
1: From the Bloody Marys on a Saturday morning to snow cones at a tournament on a Sunday afternoon, these people were making friends at an age where, quite frankly, it's hard to make new friends.
16: Nice shot, man.
1: Being social after a year where, quite frankly, it's been really hard to be social. For these millions of addicts, pickleball is more than just a sport with a silly name. It's a way to make their hearts strong and warm at the same time. Some people are happy pressing play for fun, going outside, getting some fresh air, some exercise, and some press play for a living. They press play for their country. And we're going to press play on our TVs this summer and watch them do it. At the olympics and although the 2020 games were delayed because of the pandemic the flame will soon burn bright over tokyo abc's jim ryan will be there
23: it seems so very long ago that the olympic rings were hoisted in an arena in rio de janeiro brazil at the last summer olympics months of demonstrations and talk of unfinished buildings of sewage in the bay and the threat of zika finally came down to the day of the opening ceremonies and Carlos Arthur Newsman, president of the Brazilian Olympic Committee, was weary of the question, is Brazil ready? Yes, we are ready. You know better than me. I've seen I've seen been... Except for World Wars One and Two, the Summer Olympics have been held right on schedule every four years since 1896, so a five-year lapse between the Games is truly unusual. And when the 32nd Games of the Olympiad get underway on July 23rd, the world will see five new or returning events or entire sports. Surfing, skateboarding, sport climbing, karate, and baseball slash softball. Adding a sport means more than just printing new programs. You had to be
24: what's called a recognized federation. Then you keep pushing, pushing, pushing. So one of those is one of the new sports for the Tokyo Olympics, and that's
23: karate. Historian David Walachensky specializes in chronicling the story of the Olympics. The push to get karate on the roster has been going on since the 1970s. But choosing what will and what won't be played in any given year used to be left to the International Olympic Committee.
24: Now they say, well, the local organizing committee can add sports for their own Olympics. So that's how baseball and softball are now back again for the Tokyo Olympics because the Japanese love baseball.
23: <laughs> baseball softball was on the program from 1996 to 2008, but it was pulled for 2012 and 2016. And when Team USA takes to the diamond in Japan, you'll see a lot of familiar faces. 2-2 pitch. Todd Frazier, tuck that one. Todd Frazier about... is one of the 26 free agents, double A AA or triple A players on the roster. Team USA defeated Venezuela to qualify for a trip to Tokyo. But choosing Olympic competitions is about more than just local taste, After all, says David Walichensky.
24: You take a sport like
23: squash, which
24: is practiced in more countries than any other sport that is not part of the Olympic program. They desperately try to make themselves telegenic and they can't get in, whereas skateboarding can get in. It appeals to the youth audience.
23: That's right. The sport can't just be challenging to the athlete. It must also be fun to watch. Because about 30 years ago, the Olympic organizers realized that...
24: Uh Uh-oh. We're losing the youth audience. And if we lose them when they're young, we're going to lose them for the rest of of their
23: lives. And then there go the Olympics. So while baseball may have been a no-brainer for the games in baseball-loving Japan...
24: Adding something like uh, sport climbing or skateboarding is a bit more questionable.
23: Like baseball, diehard sports fans may recognize some of the competitors in other sports. Three-time Olympic snowboarder Sean White had intended to try to qualify for skateboarding.
2: I assumed at some point in my lifetime, you know, skateboarding would get into the Olympics and pursuing that goal and dream.
23: But now White says he plans to stick to the snow and skip the Summer Olympics this time around. (laughs) Meanwhile, out on Surigasaki Beach, surfing will make its debut with 20 men and 20 women from 17 nations, including the United States and host nation Japan. There's no firm decision on the inclusion of surfing in Paris in 2024 or Surf Heaven Los Angeles in 2028. But as telegenic as karate or surfing might be, when was the last time you watched either one on TV? Those sports and the athletes who compete in them rely on the Olympics for their economic survival, says historian David Walachinski.
24: A sport like basketball or soccer, this sport is going to go on whether it's in the Olympics or not. But most of the other sports are only watched once every four
23: years. You've heard it a thousand times by now. The pandemic of 2020 changed the world. It even forced a one-year postponement of the Summer Olympiad. But David Wallachinski stresses the word postponement, not cancellation. The Olympic movement survived
24: two world wars and three boycotts in a row, 76, 80, 84. So a delay because of a pandemic is just a blip.
23: And now he's preparing to write another chapter in the history of the quadrennial events, even as he holds out hope for tug of war. Well, I've got
24: my fingers crossed. Maybe they'll add it.
23: <laughs> and I'll see you in Tokyo. Jim Ryan, ABC News.
0: You're listening to Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson.
1: Riding a bike, it's one of those things that means different things to different people. For some, it's simply transportation. For others, it's a reminder of lazy summer days spent exploring. Your first taste of independence, it's play, or exercise, or ball. And for some, says reporter E.J. Becker, it's an obsession known as the Tour de France.
8: Road here, all the way to the summit of
25: it's mesmerizing that a human body can sit on a 17-pound piece of machinery to take it to the top of
8: a mountain
19: i think about that when i ride sometime and i'm i'm pushing myself at my absolute limit going up a hill and i think what if i was racing somebody right now and they went by me and i had to try and find some more i guess it's just the drama of competition it is the crown jewel of cycling and it draws thousands upon thousands to the narrowest roads and highest mountain passes in france every year and for 21 days in summer Cycling fans across America set alarms and DVRs to watch the best of the best go wheel-to-wheel in the Tour de France. And to tell themselves, heck yeah, I could make it up that mountain. It's not that much bigger than the hill down the street.
25: Yeah, exactly. Except when you go to de d'Huez, you'll go, oh, wait a minute, that's just a pump in the road.
19: (laughs) Christina Decker owns a bicycle shop in midtown Kansas City, a shop she started working in when she was seven.
25: My brother was a racer. Racing in Europe, my dad was like, I got to support his habit a little different and was working at a bike shop and decided to open his own store, which was his dream.
19: Fast forward over three decades, and that shop is still around, as is the family obsession with cycling, watching, riding, and sharing.
25: When a cyclist comes in, or a non-cyclist comes in, and you get them their first bike and they leave and they come back... I had no idea cycling was this fun.
20: My best
19: friend and I ride together a lot. Steve Parker is a radio traffic reporter and avid cyclist. Our biggest thrill is finding a road that we haven't ever been on. See where it takes us. His on-air name is Major Miles. And Major Miles make up some of his favorite memories. On the bike, like the time he did his first 100-mile ride. The Buffalo Bill Century in Leavenworth, which is an annual event I did. That's the very first time I ever rode 100 miles at one time. And memories from the TV with one of the tour's most unforgettable moments.
3: 1989,
19: American Greg LeMond won his second Tour de France, beating a Frenchman in Paris on the last stage of the race. Greg LeMond averaged 34 miles an hour for that time trial, which for years and years stood as the fastest time trial ever in the Tour de France. Which Before. is incredible. Unbelievable. Go out, ride a bike, go 20 miles an hour on it for just a little bit, and that you'll be worn out. Imagine going 30 for over an hour. It's just, yeah, they're superhuman. I can ride my bike with no handlebars. For so many folks these days, though, cycling is more than exercise. It's more than entertainment. It's a way of life that others, like Steve Parker's wife, Mary, have learned to deal with.
23: Whenever we go somewhere, bike goes and uh,
21: wife just knows that. That's another concession she's made because sometimes there's a little bit, do you really have to take the bike? And I'm saying, you know I'll go out and I'll ride in the morning before you guys even get up and be done. Often I'll be a little grumpy. You need to ride your bike.
26: I can tell when you haven't been on your bike, you're just grumpy. She can tell when I haven't sat on a bike long enough.
19: Grumpiness and a lack of riding seem to be a common theme.
6: It's like you're in a weird mood, you need to go ride. And when I come back, she's like, Well, wow, that did you some good, didn't it? Because you're, you're smiling, you look a little bit worn out and your mind is correct.
19: For Dave Reinert, a part-time bike mechanic and stay-at-home dad, cycling is a lifestyle. It's one where he chooses two wheels over four most of the time.
6: When I really realized that I can go places without my car, and that was about 10 years ago, and I ditched the car, and then I was like, oh, well, there's all this other kind of cycling I could be doing. Why am I not doing this?
19: What is it about riding a bike? It's freedom. And he's built his family's life around the bike where they live, where they shop, where the kids go to school. And it's all rubbing off on the kids, too. She'll come home with homework sometimes that says, like,
6: oh, what are some goals in your life? And it's to ride my bike everywhere and not to have so many cars. I'm like, oh, she's listening.
19: And Dave's daughter gets it, whether she realizes it or not. Because whether it's the joy of watching the pros, riding the bike yourself, or living a cycling lifestyle, cycling may be the one way that each and every one of us can feel like a kid
25: again. It. We get people on bikes a lot of times, and they come back giggling. And you're just—they're like, I feel like that 12-year-old kid again. And it is pure innocence, the pure fun, the pure giggles.
19: And if you haven't felt that feeling in a while, you might get it from watching the yellow jersey on TV today. Comes to the line. He takes the best time. Or step outside, because that feeling's just two wheels and a few pedal strokes down the road.
8: I will-
1: For millions, the hands-down best form of play is simply getting outdoors and exploring. Whether that's a hike around where you live or a full-on vacation to a national park, there's just something about getting back to nature that resets your psyche and your soul. And maybe you've been to Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon, you're looking for somewhere new to play. ABC's Eric Mallow has just the place. A brand new national park, he went and he takes us along for the ride. Jason, West Virginia's New River Gorge National Park
12: and Preserve was designated the country's 63rd National Park as a part of the December COVID relief bill. It's actually one of the oldest rivers in the entire world. A sprawling 53-mile body of water that flows through the Appalachian region, surrounded by scaling rock and lush green trees. It's a haven for rock climbers, whitewater rafters, kayakers, hikers anyone looking for an outdoor adventure. Over 70,000 acres worth of vast natural beauty certainly looks the part of an American national park, though as I came to find, securing the designation did not come without some resistance. Over Memorial Day weekend, my fiancé and I took a drive from New York to southern West Virginia to explore why that might be, and check out what people were saying about America's newest national park.
23: country road.
12: 11 hours of driving through the rain brought us to the town of Beckley, where we stayed, located a half hour south of the Canyon Rim Visitor Center. The first stop on our journey through the gorge, or as locals were calling it, the new. So we're leaving the Canyon Rim Visitor Center, our way the car to the Endless Rim Trail? I don't even know what it's called.
25: Endless Wall.
12: Endless Wall, Thank you. We drove just around the corner to begin hiking the Endless Wall Trail, a moderate incline leading hikers up high above the flowing new river. This is tight. I feel like a mountain goat walking right along the edge. Oh my God. This is so cool. There was a lot of that kind of reaction on this trip, and we weren't the only ones impressed.
19: It's actually a lot bigger than we first thought. There's a lot that we know we're not gonna get to this time.
12: We met Jen and Max, hikers from the Pittsburgh area. It
4: doesn't feel like you're three hours outside of Pittsburgh.
12: (laughs) They had New River Gorge circled on their bucket list, but said the National Park designation did prompt their visit.
4: I think it put more of an urgency just for like, wanting to cross off my list but it's been on his list Mm. for years yeah so we were definitely going to come here no matter what
12: endless wall didn't just offer some great views of the river and trees so you literally up at diamonds point after our conversation with our new friends from pittsburgh can see the new river gorge bridge which is the bridge in west virginia which we drove over unexpectedly (laughs) <laughs> did not realize what we were doing. Yeah. The 3,000-foot steel behemoth is one of the largest single-span arch bridges in the entire world. It's almost 1,000 feet high and a state landmark, and it's kind of everywhere. You see it on postcards. You can even see it depicted on one side of their state quarter. And we wanted to go see the bridge up close. Then we would descend down to the new river. But on our way, we met a couple first-time hikers of the new, just like us.
27: A couple of chapters of Quick, which
4: is a queer-focused climbing group all over the country. And so we're here with
0: the D.C. chapter.
12: Brenda and Helena were part of the group. Helena had been to a few national parks herself.
0: Been to the Grand Canyon, Acadia National Park up in Maine. So pretty. That place is gorgeous. Yeah. Yosemite.
12: According to their leader, Brian, though, the New River Gorge might be getting more attention now that it's a national park. But for those who live in the surrounding area, the secret's kind of been out. Climbing
13: hasn't changed. Hiking hasn't changed, um, to my knowledge. All
12: right, at the end of the trailhead saw the river from a very high point, very vertical, wouldn't want to fall, wouldn't want to climb, but a good trail. We continued our descent from the bridge crossing. I don't even know what bridge this is. We'll talk about it. After. Well, this is an area rich in history, and that happened to be the 132 year old Fayetteville station bridge that crosses the new river, which we finally reached. I want to feel how cold the water is. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much more to do and see here from old coal mines to countless natural wonders to adventurous activities. It's hard to fit it all in 48 hours. The next day, we worked our way up the distance of the park to hike several trails. We began in the southeastern corner at the sandstone. Falls Boardwalk and were introduced to the New River's largest waterfall that spanned 1500 feet. We then drove West to tiptoe alongside the fortress rock wall and exposed coal seams on the Castle Rock Trail. This is really, really cool. I really like this. This is so different and got our postcard shot of the New River Gorge Bridge on the long point trail the bridge right there. Wow, you get a great shot of it. We did not get this close yesterday. Officials say people are visiting the gorge. This is Park Superintendent Lizzie West.
14: We have seen an uptick again this year since the designation. She suggests
12: planning ahead before you
14: come. Know what the popular trails are and then also have an alternative. You know, try to do it Monday through Friday if you can. Part of your experience is you want that grandeur of enjoying it to yourself or with your party.
12: There's something for any family or any type of traveler at the New River Gorge. And the surrounding towns are prime destinations for some great food and drinks, as I soon discovered. In between all of our hiking, we had to grab some food. And we wanted to explore the town of Fayetteville and the surrounding areas of the park. After all, part of what makes the new River Gorge being named America's 63rd National Park so exciting for local folks is it marks a shift in the state's economy. For local restaurants and businesses, that's welcome news. Less than half a mile away from Long Point Trail, we stopped by the Arrowhead Bike Farm and Campground, where visitors can rent mountain bikes and grab a bike.
22: We kind of focus and cater to mountain bikers, though we host and love
12: all other activity doers. Adam Stevens owns the Arrowhead Bike Farm. He's a veteran of the outdoor and mountain biking industry. He's excited about the National Park designation, but isn't so sure of its immediate impact.
22: It's not clear as to what percentage could be allocated to what causation, (laughs) because COVID also gave a huge bump in our local visitation.
12: At the equipment shop Waterstone Outdoors, they too noticed a spike. The foot traffic in our business
11: is off the hook and that is a great problem to have. Maura Kistler
12: is the co-owner of Waterstone.
11: All of us business owners in this area getting ready for this moment. Now we're getting our moment and we believe we're ready for it, but it's been complicated by Is the park ready for it?
12: The infrastructure caused some concern, but Mora thinks the park will adjust.
11: We just need a few more parking lots, and we need to get better at distributing our visitors across our park.
12: There are hopes in expanding parking to accommodate a flow of visitors. Then there's another issue steeped in tradition in West Virginia, hunting. We're
28: not against tourism, not against national parks. I just never personally saw the reason why they had to take this area away from hunters.
12: Larry Case spent decades as a conservation officer and hunter in the New River Gorge.
28: Hunters need to be concerned about public land access. Now, they
12: didn't stop hunting in the gorge. Making the distinction of the name of this park is important. About 10 percent of the gorge is a national park. The rest of it is a preserve that's where you can hunt. Advocates for naming this a national park say hunters lost just a small portion of territory, but those who oppose the designation argue since the new river was established as a national river in 1978, there's a bit of a misconception about what protection means.
28: We didn't need to change it to a, quote, national park for the protection of the area. This, they argue,
12: was more of a sacrifice. A lot of us
28: hunters, we feel This area was taken from us.
12: But there's another thing I observed about the New River Gorge, and it's not just about its natural beauty. Something I didn't know I'd really find there. There's a mutual respect between these competing forces.
11: I know Larry Case. He's a good man. Um, The hunters have been expressing their concerns. They lost some hunting, and these are hunting grounds that had been used for generations, and that is never
0: an easy thing to
11: accept.
12: There's a genuine understanding between people that when it comes to issues it feels like everyone would agree on. Who wouldn't really want a national park in their state? Well, it's actually complicated, and there are in fact winners and losers, but West Virginia is openly trying to use its outdoor resources to help remake its economy. What people will find at the New River Gorge National Park and Preserve is it's not just a scenic beauty and outdoor playground, that it definitely is. It also tells an American story, where diverse viewpoints do coexist, sometimes begrudgingly but there's hope that this park in hosting a number of new visitors can work together to preserve the interest of one another and make the region more prosperous and just as green as they know it to be i'm eric mallow abc news
28: people who disappear without a trace The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's
9: a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
28: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.
0: It's what we're watching, what we're listening to, and it's what we're doing. It's Press Play from ABC News Radio. Here's Jason Nathanson.
1: Are you ever happier than when it's time to play? As a kid, it means all the schoolwork or chores are done, or at least on pause. As an adult, your workday, it's over, or it's the weekend. You get to choose what you want to do, pressing play and just having fun. In some cases, it's music. In others, video games. But first, watching a movie, that's great. Being outside, that's great too. So often, you have to choose between the two, but increasingly, people aren't. A staple of the 1970s, The Drive-In has made a big comeback. As ABC's Alex Stone learned in Southern California. It's
20: a Tuesday night in Santa Monica. The refreshing evening beach marine layer moving in on a cool summer night. I'm heading to my first drive in movie in, well, my life. I'm pretty excited pulling in here. I don't think I've ever been to a drive in movie theater before. Growing up in the 80s, we just didn't do it. You went to the movie theater, you got popcorn, and then you went to the theater with your girlfriend. And it was the time beyond drive in movies.
0: Turn left onto Donald Douglas Loop South.
20: But on this night, I'm joining the crowds who in the past year and a half have found a new love for outdoor entertainment, outdoor movies, outdoor concerts, something a new generation is embracing. Hi, how are you? Even though indoor movie theaters are open again, there's a real attraction that's been rediscovered of the drive-in movie. As I pull in in front of my car, I'm directed to my spot to park by an attendant on roller skates. I'm at the Santa Monica Airport in a large parking lot. Big light-up palm trees decorate the area. Concession stand, food is being sold. Jerry Cottle is a founder of this experience.
15: So we are at the Drive-In uh, Cinema Club here in Santa Monica Airport. Uh, we've been running this for the last couple of months, and we're just bringing back that fantastic, nostalgic throwback that is the Drive-In Cinema.
20: It's actually called the Rooftop Cinema Club because around the U.S., Coddle's company pre-COVID showed outdoor movies. Movies on high-rise rooftops in places like L.A., Houston, and New York in comfy chairs, glasses of wine, and the movie on a big screen they had to pivot during COVID to a more classic way of showing movies.
15: And what's brilliant is this is really connecting with local moviegoers again. I think people, um, you know, last year especially were thankful that it was, you know, we it was essential to the times basically as we focused it around safety, value, and community. Safe for customers and consumer. The value was good because you can fit as many people as you want in your car with your family and it's one prize. And then finally the community part, we wanted to get our staff back to work and also the business community back to work. So it was just this perfect solution to everything going. Going on and we opened our first one back in May and we've just from then forth we've been opening more because people just are really loving the fact it's back and
20: that pivot they made to drive-in movies was at that time to save the company Coddle's father also named Jerry was a famous British circus owner who taught his son how to bring the entertainment the people wanted
15: I didn't know is this something that's left in the past is this something that you know people will go yeah that was fun but so we just had no clue uh, and you know that's why we, we had to basically be really really clever we did everything on a budget we had to make sure it was quality, but we kept it really simple, but no we had we had no idea we just we were just you know thought this is our only chance we 've either got to do this, or we may have to fold the company and it saved our company
20: now it's working in a big way. Coddle has half a dozen venues open in several states, more are coming, some are drive in some back outdoors on rooftops, bringing back the true rooftop cinema club. But here at the drive in, I cozied into my front seat and got ready to watch the classic movie. Stand By Me. All right, so i got to put the radio to 107.9 so that we can hear the movie. We are thrilled that you chose the Rooftop Cinema Club drive-in. There it is. It I got it. This party with a crowd of about 30 cars, some with mattresses and duvets in the back of their pickup trucks, others in the back of their SUVs with the seats down and glasses of wine, picnics, it begins.
15: Eddie Duchamp was the craziest guy we hung around with. He didn't have much of a chance in life. Film is about escapism. It's about the enjoyment. It's about entertainment. And I think now more than ever, people need entertainment. The crowd is hooked. No longer is a drive-in
20: in in a sketchy place on the outskirts of town. Now it's the place to be. Lauren and Winston were here in the car behind me. We just thought it'd be fun.
4: Yeah, we needed like a creative date night and we were driving the other night and we saw all the cars like coming up here and we we're like, wait, this is, it's like a dream date. It's kind of cute. And I wanted to go to a movie theater and this just seemed a little more exciting.
20: Daniel and Brandon are next to them, all set up in the back of their pickup. We
22: opened this up. We went with theater seating. You'll notice we did some camping chairs in the back and so then we Tommy
20: Bahama chair here,
22: beach chair in the front. So you don't kill the view right there. So we're putting our birthday man right up front here. We're going to sit in the back on our blankets, pillows. We're ready to go. He says he's
20: hoping this experience lasts long beyond COVID.
22: I think we got to bring him back. And if they don't, then I'm going to find a piece of land and I'm going to start my you're gonna do it yep this is something that brings everyone together and uh this would be great to have more of these more
5: options for this
20: but if it's not a movie you're looking for maybe it's a drive-in concert something else that now has a strong following tailgating essentially while watching a live concert on stage Welcome to the Ventura County Fairgrounds about an hour and 20 minutes away from Santa Monica where this concert crowd watching the band war perform is in the back of their cars, some in fold up chairs in the back of pickup trucks as a part of concerts in your car. They were loving themselves. This too was fine to need and fill it. And now the crowds are absolutely loving the experience, being able to get comfy in and around their cars, bring in food, bring in drinks, and essentially tailgate while watching concerts right up against the stage.
4: This is so good. I love it. Yes, it's a must because this, I mean, it works. It totally works. And it's something that should have been implemented way before the pandemic even hit. So yeah, this is great. It's a great idea. We will definitely keep coming. Well. If- Remember the old drive-in days?
20: (laughs) They're back. Yeah. The whole drive-in concert concept is a brainchild of Vincenzo Giamanco, who's a founder of CBF Productions, a company that, before the pandemic, was putting on concerts up and down California. Yeah,
22: I mean, we completely got kicked kicked on our butts um, when the pandemic hit. It it, was—I still remember to this day. My wife's like, "What are we gonna do? Like, how are we gonna make money?" I mean, we've been around for about you know over a decade. We normally produce 12 large-scale events a year up and down the, the state of California. And it was like, now what? And really, we came across this parking lot the Ventura County Fairgrounds, and it was just like a random idea. It was like, why don't we do, like, car concerts? He
20: says at first it was hard to get big-name groups to agree to it. Nobody thought it would work to perform to a tailgating crowd, but it did. Like, drive-in movies, Drive-in concerts has proven to be crazy popular. Well, it,
22: it started the snowball. At first we couldn't get anybody. I mean, like, what do you mean car concerts? Like, what are you talking about? And then we had one, and then it was started to realize, like, look, if you're gonna work this year, this is where you're gonna work. Like, this is your this is your option. And we we just we were able to get acts that are arena level acts coming through our drive drive-in that we've never would even we had, have had a conversation with you know we had Snoop Dogg, we had Cascade, Cascade will sell 30,000 tickets out at the Staples Center you know he came and did our driving I mean it was it was just amazing so we had uh, Third Eye Blind, uh, we had the Beach Boys with John Stamos
20: and, and Mark McGrath and now the crowds show up to watch anyone from Nelly to Florida Georgia Line to war perform.
10: It
22: was just magic. I mean, when everybody came, and there's something about having your own space, and you know, being able to hang out like by your car and like have a, you know, you bring your own food, and you're able to see like a a full-on concert. That's like you're really close which is really kind of cool. It
11: is really cool. I, When we pulled in, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so like awesome. It really breaks, takes me back, you know. But
20: while it is awesome and people love it to really make money, Giamanco and the groups that perform need more people. And so the drive-in concert series while popular is fading away,
22: I always thought there'd be a lane for concerts like this—concerts in your car, like a you know car concert. I, unfortunately, I feel like it's going—it's going to be almost like a time capsule. I think it will eventually go back to live, you know, live events. There's a whole business side of it that kind of make us not be able to do it. Um, you know, a lot of these acts that have been you know want to tour—they want the people right there. They want the thousands of people and and the sad part is for me is like i i get that but from the fan consumer experience like if you've gone to one of these these are you're never going to forget it because it really is one of the best experiences for a consumer to just enjoy a live concert.
20: So maybe the drive-in experience will be a thing of the 70s and 2021, but it's got a huge fan base and loves the outdoor experience. For movies, that's not going away, and music.
28: I know it's going to change, but if this happens again, I'd come back to this. It, it feels fun to be, in, you know, in a parking lot with guys. You know, it feels like a drive in the outdoors and everything. I would do it. I would do this again. Although I know it's going to go back to the concert halls and so on, I would do this again.
11: On. Here
20: we go. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News in Santa Monica and Ventura.
1: One of the ways millions press play these days is by literally pressing play on a video game. And it's big business. Games including Elden Ring, God of War, and Assassin's Creed have spawned sold out convention halls, blockbuster movie franchises, and rabid online fan bases. But there's another side of the industry that's getting a lot of attention. No explosions required. ABC's Mike Dubusky took a trip to the Digital Farmstead to find out more about the world of Cozy Gaming.
21: The Electronics Entertainment Expo, commonly known as E3, is one of the biggest video game conferences in the world, a place for developers to pull out all the stops and build hype for some of their most anticipated titles, and this year the hype was strong. Microsoft marked the long-awaited return of the Halo franchise with a preview of Halo Infinite. Are you ready? Gearheads will soon be able to pick up Forza Horizon 5, a racing game that features a Mercedes supercar you can't even buy in real life yet. Bethesda, the studio behind hit series like Elder Scrolls and Fallout, announced their next big title is headed to space with Starfield. The Guardians of the Galaxy are even getting their own video game. And Battlefield 2042, that one's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Typical video gaminess so far, but let's say you prefer smooth jazz to hard rock, the soft pitter-patter of rain on a windowsill, a warm mug of tea, maybe a bit of honey. Well, it turns out there's a whole world of gaming just for you, too.
27: Well, hi, cozy friends.
21: That's Kennedy Rose, aka Cozy Games, or Cozy K on social media. That's where you'll often find her playing games that are a little less intense, a little more lo-fi, and, of course, cozy.
27: Hi, cozy family. Hi, cozy gamers. Get your tea. Get your sweats. Because we're playing the new Stardew Valley. When you typically think of gaming, I feel like a lot of people think of maybe shooting games and kind of competitive shooting games. And cozy games are probably on the exact opposite of that spectrum.
21: Kennedy tells me a community favorite in this genre is a title called Stardew Valley.
27: It's really cute. It's this 8-bit art style and the music is amazing. You just inherit this farm from your grandpa and then you're leaving your corporate life behind and building up this farm and connecting with the townspeople.
21: Gaming is a big part of Kennedy's life and she says it started early.
27: From like as early as I remember, I played video games with my family and that's how my brother and I bonded a lot.
21: She just graduated from law school in the spring and she tells me that while she's been studying for the bar exam, gaming has become a way for her to de-stress after a long day.
27: I would say how. Halfway through law school, you know, just normal stress, I was like, I need a better coping mechanism.
21: Not long after, she started an Instagram account, where you can find pictures of her Nintendo Switch, her gaming laptops, and keyboards, alongside incense, mugs of tea, candles, and earth tone blankets. And she found that she wasn't the only one cultivating a cozy feed.
27: I... Saw this little community on Instagram and I was like, I just want to get in this community and I just want to share my love for these games.
21: That community isn't limited to law students either.
29: We have everything from like knitters to bird
21: watchers to cooks. That's Dr. Matt White, CEO of White Thorn Digital.
29: The purpose of our brand was definitely to help people just chill out and and have these experiences that are a little more intimate mindful slow
21: Whitethorn publishes independent games like Beasts of Maravilla Island where players take on the role of a wildlife photographer on a tropical island or Beans the coffee shop simulator if neither of those strike your fancy this fall they plan to release a game called Lake which caught Kennedy's attention too
27: it's just an open world game where you're driving the mail truck around delivering packages and talking to the townspeople alright then get ready to roll I think that's so, so cool.
29: <laughs> I mean, it's literally about driving postal mail around a lake. It's, it's, it's as stress-free as it possibly could be.
21: If that all sounds a bit like a Hallmark movie, that's intentional. Hallmark movies help many people relax. And White says his games live in the same market.
29: The little anxiety economy? Uh, so we say, you know, we mean
21: like CBD drinks, weighted blankets, fidget spinners. But a cozy game doesn't have to be all plush socks and books of poetry. Some people find horror relaxing.
29: A violent game can still be a casually played
21: game. You think about like something like Carrion
29: from *Devolver Digital. I mean, it's violent and gross, but... The way you play it is tremendously casual and fun and silly.
21: Yeah, I'm going to spare you a detailed description of that one. But White says, regardless of subject matter, his criteria for a cozy game ultimately comes down to three things, starting with approachability.
29: Anybody anywhere can play this, from your grandma to like your rank halo player or son. We also say that uh, it's stress free. So this means that even though you might lose or it might be challenging. We're not going to, like, delete hours of your progress or give you poor rankings or things like that if you're unable to to meet the challenge. And then we also say uh, bite-sized. This doesn't mean the game itself is necessarily short. You can put hundreds of hours into Animal Crossing or Stardew Valley. But rather, it means that the game is designed in such a way that you can have a super whole, complete experience in a relatively short sitting.
21: That idea of a bite-sized gaming experience is important too because it allows Whitethorn to cater to gamers who are getting a little older, maybe have a demanding job, a couple of kids, and generally just don't have as much time for the hobby as they used to.
29: It lets us keep playing in a way that it's hard for us to otherwise do if if we've kind of, you know,
21: grown up. And where big titles like Ghost of Tsushima or Cyberpunk 2077 can top 60 bucks plus the cost of a new Xbox, PlayStation, or gaming laptop, cozy indie games are usually a little cheaper. They're available on more accessible devices like the Nintendo Switch, or even on your smartphone.
29: Of course, if you served me a variety of 20 or $30 three-to-five-hour experiences, I'd buy one every single weekend.
21: The comparative accessibility of cozy games stretches beyond economics, too.
29: Unfortunately for anybody in this world who does not look like a straight, white, able-bodied man, Um, there's not a lot of representation of you in games.
21: White says the industry has made strides in recent years, but stresses that there's a lot more work to be done in terms of including different genders, races, and sexual orientations in gaming.
29: And I think that's, like, super important.
21: And if her Instagram DMs are any indication, some of that change is starting with people like Kennedy.
27: And there's a lot of people that contact me and are like, I never knew other people only like to play these types of games and i feel so seen like i had never felt seen in the gaming space before
21: i'm mike dubusky abc news
0: it's what we're watching what we're listening to and it's what we're doing it's press play from abc news radio here's jason nathanson
1: to get our live music fix during the pandemic People had to come up with different ways of pressing play, and that created a whole new thing. The Versus Battle, a viral series that's bringing music into our homes. ABC's Lionel Moise talked with the creators.
3: It started as a friendly Instagram live battle between two friends. We definitely didn't
28: expect for everybody to respond to verses the way that they've done.
3: But the verses between legendary producers Swiss Beats and Timbaland playing their songs hit for hit turned into a global phenomenon in the pandemic. Bringing together greats like the Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind & Fire. Randy and Monica The late DMX and Snoop Dog please if the only thing
7: you had said was came out the plate stay out my way they'll be gonna
28: and
3: even gospel artists Kirk Franklin and Fred Hammond
8: I hear you shout many I hear you in nature
3: and growing from just playing the songs and discussing them to full-on live performances. The series got so popular in the pandemic, it crashed Instagram Live. But Timbaland says that let them know they were on to something.
6: Just love. And the love just grew so big it we had to expand, you know, the the enterprise that we had.
3: While we were in lockdown, they brought us live music and nostalgia, while also allowing those performers to get back to what they loved the most in all the uncertainty of the pandemic. Music heals the world.
28: Whenever there was any type of crisis, Music always came through, whether that was for civil rights, whether that was for things happening as bad in the world. Music, you know, has always
3: brought the world together. Swiss beats on the reach of the performances and the audience it attracted. Former First Lady Michelle Obama even jumped in the chat. The cool part about it was
28: not only did they Michelle Obama and, and, and a lot of greats showed up. Everybody was in the party together. Our entire culture be out. One place at such a
3: time, was it was amazing
28: to watch, and it just kept spreading and getting bigger.
3: And as people around the world made Sunday dinners and had watch parties to tune in, so did Timbaland and Swiss. Swiss's family made it a weekly event.
28: My mom, my dad, my, my brothers, everybody, my cousins, like people come together as a family, you know, when it's time for verses. I mean, we was in the house dressing up. Full outfits
3: it wasn't just good music it was also good business for the artists in what they dubbed the verses effect hey the
28: Gladys night streams go up 700 <laughs> percent amazing creatives man that's like that shows you that Music is timeless.
3: The company was sold to TikTok competitor Triller in March, and Timbaland and Swiss became shareholders in the Triller network. Following that deal, though, the two stars announced that they would share their equity stake with the 43 artists who appeared on the battle before it was sold. Timbaland says it's all about giving creatives their flowers. You
6: know, we always see that one one or two people get all the money, but we built this with the community. So it's only right to involve everybody to help us build this spaceship that we build called Versus. It's just just only right.
3: Swiss Beat says this also exposes the younger crowd to the music we loved years ago. Yeah,
11: another one of my favorites of yours. I love this one. Love of a Yeah. One time?
28: But we wanted this generation to understand that, you know, music doesn't have an age limit a hit is a hit. The
3: series has brought in lots of sponsorship, merch and collaborations while the producers hope it will also be an inspiration for others with an idea or vision. Timbaland again. You
6: can take a mustard seed and watch it grow. So all creators and, you know, people who are doubting their ideas, don't doubt your idea. We live in a world of disruptiveness and we just show y'all how to disrupt. Every creator should never stop doing what the world needs. If they have something that the world needs, keep focusing on it.
3: As for the future, they plan to take the battles international. And while they wouldn't give away too much information, Swiss hinted that includes areas outside of music. We're definitely looking into, you know, comedy. We're looking into sports. As the country opens up and we return to some sense of normal, the versus battles will continue, but they will evolve. This past year, though, it certainly gave music lovers a way to connect and experience art together in a time most of the world was kept apart because of the pandemic. Lionel Moyes, ABC News. While most of us press play for fun, someone has
1: to make the stuff we watch, listen to, and consume. And when the pandemic first began, many of these actors, dancers, and musicians found themselves out of work and scrambling to find some way of making a living. Now that things are opening back up, jazz performers are once again getting paid to play for us. And even though it was a struggle, ABC's Sherry Preston says many of them have found themselves grateful for the past 14 months.
11: Smalls Jazz Club in New York City's West Village was founded in 1994 and one of the best places in the city to see rising talent in the New York jazz scene. But when I ran into the founder and former co-owner of Smalls, Mitch Borden, over Memorial Day, he wasn't at the club. He was outside drumming a little, but mostly listening to his friends play at a party for free. But he wasn't as down as you'd maybe expect after more than a year of lockdown.
5: I'm very hopeful that the pandemic will be good for music. I think that the musicians got a chance to shed and really perfect their art. And uh, most of them were stipend by the state somehow. Once things clear up, I think the music's gonna be a lot better.
11: Now that's not to say things haven't been tough, especially in the beginning when restaurants and bars began closing their doors.
5: So often when things get started going again, momentum is lost and a lot of the music is, is thought of as a luxury item that they don't need. The restaurants don't need it. Right. So a lot of gigs are lost.
11: Mitch tells me there are two types of musicians.
5: There's the devoted ones that will only play music and not have a day job. And 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 they can hustle. But there's a certain way of living. They have to live on the bare minimum. They can't have any expenses or, or you know, any kind of... extracurricular activity. You know, those are rare people. But then there's there's, there's a second tier of musicians that have a day job, and they usually don't get to that level, you know, that the devoted musician gets to, but the life is much easier.
11: Brian Marcella, who plays keyboards with several bands, including John Zorn, also teaches music at the New School in Manhattan. So he was one of the lucky ones. He had a day job, and that day job, made him eligible for the expanded unemployment benefits that kept him afloat
26: it was amazing and you know it was great for the gig workers were able to get it i actually just decided to file because my hours got cut i've actually been able to still collect unemployment even while teaching so it's been a lifesaver Um, i've had a lot of recording projects so the studios were closed for a while in new york and they've been opened at different times They started to open last fall and then they closed again in the winter when things got worse again. But I've had a number of recording projects, Um, so sort of between that and um, fortunately I was lucky enough to have savings.
11: He says the pandemic actually did have a silver lining in a way because it provided musicians the opportunity to practice, compose, and see their kids for once. But you
26: know, I, I know for those that have children, particularly like like a lot of my musician friends that tour a lot, one of the things they really en- enjoyed and that they like to find a better balance of is how much time they were able to spend home and see their families because they were on the road for years and didn't have that. So I'm hoping that in a way we find a balance and able to incorporate positive things that were able to enter our life because our work kind of stopped.
11: Work stopping and stopping work was painful for drummer Lemmy Estreffi, who compares the early days of the pandemic to losing a limb.
13: It's like somebody's cutting your legs and your arms, your head,
24: you know, slowly killing you slowly because this, the whole culture lives from that, you know, like music is out there. People need to go out and see theater
13: is out there, people need to go out and see it. It's all those places, same like even like religion, like it's the places where people go and worship something together or even listen something together or they relax yeah. to something together. So in this case, nobody could do that.
11: A small jazz club was able to get a small PPP loan to stay afloat during the pandemic. And it's back to offering live jazz most nights of the week. As for the musicians who once frequented the place, they're back too, but they've also chosen to give back. Sometimes they play for free, like here for friends in backyards. Keyboardist Brian Marcella tells me they never expected to get rich playing music. For them, it's all about the joy
26: particularly playing jazz and you know our life has never been easy we've never had it easy and I feel like artists are really resilient and they find a way would we've been able to find a way without the pandemic assistance probably not so that did save a lot of the musicians that I know.
11: Musicians, of course, need audiences. And during the pandemic, Mitch Borden and his wife started a nonprofit called Gotham Yardbird Sanctuary with the goal of offering free live jazz performances to help rebuild New York City as a sanctuary for musicians and aspiring artists from all over the world.
1: As I said when we started the hour, one of the great things about pressing play is that it's a time of day where you get to choose what you want to do. Inside, outside, video game, concert. It's your free time. And when it comes to stuff to watch, wow. I'm the entertainment correspondent for ABC News Radio, and it feels like there's never been a better time in history when it comes to the sheer amount of content to choose from. That's thanks in large part to all of the streaming services, multiple bottomless pits that often mimic a Las Vegas buffet, 70% 70% of the stuff, you don't want to touch, much less fill up on. But the other 30%, a lot of it is tasty, and some of it knocks your socks off. So what should you be keeping an eye out for the rest of the summer? Let's take a look.
27: Before I was an Avenger, I made mistakes. And a lot of enemies.
1: One of the biggest releases this summer is Black Widow, the Marvel movie that finally lets Scarlett Johansson's Natasha Romanoff shine. Delayed from May 2020 because of the pandemic, it's the first Marvel movie to hit theaters in over two years, and it'll also be streaming on Disney Plus. Just a day before Black Widow, did you miss me?
0: I know I've missed
1: you. Gossip Girl returns this time in the form of an HBO Max series. July 16th.
8: Nothing can come between us.
1: The highly anticipated series McCartney 321 features the Beatles legend in conversation about his life and craft with super producer Rick Rubin in a
5: series we for Hulu. We realized, you know, we were writing songs that were memorable, not because we wanted them to be memorable. Yeah. But because had we to had to remember them. remember them.
1: Also July 16th. Well, LeBron James steps into Michael Jordan's shoes with Space Jam, A New Legacy, a sequel to the bizarre 1996 animated and live-action film.
15: What's up, Doc? Bugs! Bring it here, man!
1: This one is co-written by Black Panther writer-director Ryan Coogler, and it's in theaters and streaming on HBO Max. That same day in theaters.
6: You're probably going to find out about it anyway. So here's a little preemptive truth-telling.
1: The Anthony Bourdain documentary Roadrunner premieres.
6: There's no happy ending.
1: A week later...
29: of y'all.
12: Ted!
1: Everybody's favorite lovable fish-out-of-water soccer coach Ted Lasso returns for Season 2 on Apple TV+. What do you
12: say to a cocktail,
16: Coach Lasso? Oh, the
2: same thing I'd say to Diane Sawyer if she ever asked me out on a date. Yes, please.
1: <laughs> and July 30th... Of all the Jungle Cruises you can take in the Amazon, this one is undoubtedly the cheapest. We'll find out if Disney's Jungle Cruise actually works or not. The latest movie based on one of the theme park amusement rides features Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. That's in theaters and on Disney+. Plus. Now we're in August, typically a slow time, but not this year.
15: You were going to save me?
1: On August 6th. We're all going to die. I hope so. Warner Brothers takes another shot at the Suicide Squad franchise with The Suicide Squad, a sequel to the 2016 film in which Margot Robbie, Viola Davis, and Joel Kinnaman return Idris Elba and Slice Stallone join the cast, and Guardians of the Galaxy director James Gunn takes over. That's on HBO Max and in theaters. What's The following week, Baby, I got, it's time to pay respect.
20: I'd like you to call me Miss Franklin.
1: The long-awaited Aretha Franklin movie Respect, starring Jennifer Hudson, premieres August 13th, only in theaters. Another delayed and long-awaited film, the horror movie Candyman. It's theaters August 27th, and that same day we'll see The Chair. It's the first series produced by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss since they created a little show called Game of Thrones, but don't expect dragons and swords from this Netflix dramedy, which stars Sandra Oh as the first female head of a university English department. So a lot of options on which to press play in the coming months, whether you do so inside on a screen, outside at a concert, at a national park, or hold up with a cozy video game. Whatever the case... Thanks for pressing play with us. Now I'm off to the park for some pickleball.
0: Press Play was presented by ABC News correspondent Jason Nathanson and produced by Trevor Hastings. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio.